Okay. Um, I think. Can you think of it? Are you going to mention the movie? Oh, I'm not going to do anything today, Doc. We had talked last spring about seeing Faulkner's The Reavers, you know, just and having a, um, a potluck. Um, and we will. Um, but I don't want to talk about I really want to get going because there's, I know that the Benji section has been a real challenge to everybody. I want to get into this because something amazing is going on there. But, um, I'm not remembering things, so. Um, let's say a prayer and then I'm going to read the poem and, and start the book. Um, let's say a prayer. For those of you who are new, um, we always begin with a prayer, and I've asked for prayer requests. So if anybody has prayers, don't be shy. It was a, um, a wonderful thing that we began because it made me aware um, how much we all carry. You know, you have a class like this, and you look out and think everybody's fine, and then you have prayer requests, and you realize there's a lot going on in everybody's life. So. If you have any prayer requests, don't be shy. Please don't be shy. All the people that have been devastated by yeah. the horrendous yeah. weather, the earthquakes, the hurricanes. Yeah. I have a son who lives outside of Houston and a son who lives in Orlando. Mm -hmm. They're both, oh. they're both, thank our, God. You know our son is in Ave Maria. That's where he teaches and went right through there. Mm -hmm. they had to, in fact, they had to evacuate the Cayman State here for a week. But. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, um, again, for the gift of our lives from you, and the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning, your life itself that we carry. <coughs> Strengthen us with your grace that we can nurture that life, make it real, most especially to carry you to the world, particularly where it's hard. Um, Father mentioned gender problems. Um, help us to have the courage to speak to these things in a world that too easily goes along. Give us courage to do that, all of us. I ask for a blessing in all that's beginning today with our work together. Um, there's a prophetic quality to these works. They show us things so often about ourselves that we don't want to see. Give us the courage to see it, trusting that that's the beginning of change. It's hard to change what we don't know, what we don't see. Open our eyes, help us to see, give us the courage, the trust knowing um, we have your grace to help. A blessing be upon all of our work. Um, ask a blessing on all the people affected um, by these hurricanes and the disasters here in Texas and in Florida. Um, thank you for the great showing of kindness and generosity on the people and the part of people who help. What a wonderful grace. How sad it is in some ways that it takes a disaster to bring the best out of us. It would be good for all of us to learn from that, to not wait for things to get bad before we help. Um, and I ask a special grace for our leaders in dealing with North Korea. Such a great threat today. Um, we could wake up in the morning and know that um, world-destroying bombs could go off around us. Um, 
whatever happens, help us not to be afraid. Whatever happens, um, to trust in you, even at the end of our lives, maybe most especially then. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Everybody's got a copy of Supernatural Love. <coughs> Those of you who've been here all along know that I've already read this probably more times than I should because I love this book, you know that. Um, but I thought it would it'd be particularly um, appropriate if there were newcomers today because you know that one of the purpose, the, the main purpose of this course is to see if we can't find Christ where ordinarily we don't think he's there. Most of the poems go to this. This one does, and, I, and you know my practice is I try to say as little about these poems as I can. I, don't wanna, I just want to read them and get on. I want you to hear the lyric poem, I want you to hear the music, but I want you to see what the poet is showing us. In this poem, this is very much like the Benji episode, it's so appropriate. Nothing happens. This poem is told from the point of view of a woman looking back at herself as a four-year-old girl to an experience she remembers she had with her father present. You all know this because we've been here before. But, um, she's sewing a sampler with the word beloved on it, you know? And um, her father... Her father um, wonders why she's so preoccupied with the word carnation. Um, and a little girl's a four-year-old girl. She can't explain why. She says, because. And as you know, the word carnation is the root word for incarnation. The carnation is a pinkish, fleshy flower. It means flesh. Flesh. That's what it means. Christ is in flesh. He's the second person in flesh. He's become a flower, an incarnation. Um, so she's, she's fascinated the word. And um, I'm sorry, I'm going to wait a second for... Um, I think I'm going to lock the door now. <laughs> 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 um, um, she's sewing her um, father goes to the dictionary to look up the word. It's what scholars do. And it's it, to me, it's so common. As if he could understand the meaning of car carnation by going to a dictionary. That's what we do. Because the whole poem makes it clear. A, a dictionary will never come close to explaining the meaning. Because it's not just an intellectual thing. The girl pricks herself, and her father comes to look at it, and she goes, Daddy, Daddy. Well, that's it. Nothing happened. She's sewing a sampler. She pricks herself, and except everything about this poem speaks. The thread speaks. The needle speaks. And I mean orally. Um, blossoms speak. There's nothing in this poem that doesn't speak. Words come out of everything. So it's like that Hopkins poem, Kingfishers Catch Fire. Everything in creation is a self, a subject. It speaks. It's got its own voice. So everything speaks. Um, the word itself speaks. When the father goes to the dictionary, he can hear a voice. Everything in the word is speaking. Everything that's the needle, the thread, the words. Um, 
there's all this language having to do with um, carnation. Remember, it, it, uh, it means flesh, pinkish. Christ is enfleshed. Um, when he goes to the dictionary, he sees that one of the associated words is the French clue, which means the same thing, but it also means, interestingly, nails. Nails. The, the room is described in terms of a tomb. So there's nothing in this poem that doesn't take us back to the crucifixion. So I think what's happening in this poem is that for, for a four-year-old girl who doesn't have a clue about what's going on, she is actually participating in the crucifixion. And the question, does her dad enter into that? It's an open question. But the point of it is here, it's a, it's a scene about a little girl who happens to prick herself and that's it. How many people, if we had been present in the room, how many of us would have seen that this was an actual participation in crucifixion? So it's just, I love the poem for that reason. It's, it's like so many of the other poems. We will see that in, in an event that seems so ordinary, and most of us wouldn't have a clue that Christ is there. He's always there. Do we see him? Do we see him? The poet is the one who always brings the word or helps us to see, okay? So with that, let me start. It's by um, Gertrude Schnackenberg. She's an American poet, a contemporary. Um, this is one of her poems. Um, Supernatural Love. <coughs> My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens. A blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word, carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string. It's speaking now. The obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. Notice all the associations with darkness and a tomb for this man. I mean, he lives in his head. He's like a modern scholar, but this is for dad who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the study's gloom where, as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch. Beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needles point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text. Comes one with it. I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation, but because she's four. She's four. Word roots blossom. Remember that. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does. Where following each ek, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root his love. He reads, a pink variety of clove, connatio, the Latin, meaning flesh. Remember, 
incarnation, in flesh. As if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors, her scissors speak. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud. The clove, a spice, dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, fresh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, my blood so dearly bought, it speaks. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sown. The flesh lay bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. Remember Christ called out from the cross, Father, Father. Call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury. As lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore, the flowers I call Christ. What else for? What is meant by the uh, Christ fragrance through the room? Is that death? Let's see, hold on. That's the top of the... Uh, yeah, I know. When following he checks, I um, awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads a pink variety, meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragments through the room. I, I, um, what would you call it? It's like a, um, it's like a metaphor, I think, Mike, that, um, that the scent of the flower is like an emanation, okay. Christ's scent. It comes from the carnation itself. Let me stop because I, I don't want to take time. It's just I, we could take we could actually take probably forty five minutes and talk and easily talk about this poem. But the purpose is just that I want to keep these lyrics going. So okay, um, go down Moses. Or I mean, sound of the fury. Two quick thoughts about Moby Dick and Go Down Moses. Um, I don't want to take any time, but just to carry them forward a little bit. Um, um, remember that in Moby Dick, Ishmael, Abraham, sorry, Ahab is on a quest to kill Moby Dick because Moby Dick um, took off his leg. At the heart of that book is this feeling on the part of everybody in the book, everybody in the book, that everybody is a victim because everybody's been wounded. We know that. And the reason it's so easy for him to get everybody drawn into his quest is because he's appealing to that sense that all of us have been wounded, we want to get back. So that's at the heart of it. Um, Ishmael joins that quest. Remember he said, I raise my voices higher than anybody. There's this sense that everybody's been wounded and they want a part of it. Halfway through the quest, you know, Ishmael undergoes, well, he actually goes, undergoes a series of transformations, what we call peripatia, remember from the Greek, to turn, the conversion, the turn, and he begins to love. 
And as he does, um, it changes the way he sees everything. <coughs> and it's important to remember that, because I think most people badly misread, badly misread Moby Dick. They think Moby Dick's a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. The tragic action is Ahab's. And it's important to remember that we get the Ahab story through Ishmael. It's filtered through him. And Ishmael's view is what I would call purgatorial comedy. He changes. He, he learns to see that there's a meaning in everything. All the chapters that we went through you know, showed there's this wonderful meaning in everything in nature. I suggested that it's a return to a Catholic medieval worldview, that there, there's being everywhere. There's meaning everywhere. Ahab doesn't see it. Ishmael does. So at the heart of Moby Dick is this metaphysical quest. Ahab is um, humiliated at the idea that anybody could be predestined to be damned. We talked about Calvin's influence in the, in the East Coast. and the, the thought that somebody could be born into the world and already be predestined to damnation. Would God do such a thing? That's straight out of Calvin. The, our Catholic faith doesn't look at that at all that way. So at the center of this book is this metaphysical quest. And you know that it, um, Ahab brings the ship down at the end. It goes, it goes down. Ishmael is the one survivor. And he comes back to write the book so that one of the things we're given through this book is, is a turning away, what I'm calling an exorcism of Protestant demons. This, these Calvinistic notions that people are damned. That what Ishmael brings is this wonderful spirit of openness, and, but also a warning. Um, he's a Jonah figure. He survived the whale. He comes back to tell the story, just the way Jonah did. What does he have to tell us? What he tells us is Moby Dick, to learn from him. In Go Down Moses, we saw the Isaac story, and you know there that um, Isaac discovers this horrible sin, and then tries to atone for it by renouncing the land, by giving up everything. Um, and at the end, of the, he discovers the sin is reenacted. Um, two important things that I want everybody to just remember going back. We saw that the, that the northern New England character was highly individualistic. It begins, call me Ishmael. Remember in the chapel scene, all the people are, are described as being isolados. Aboard ship, they were called isolados. Each person is isolated. isolated. There's no sense of connectedness with each other. If there's any connectedness, it's through Ishmael and what he brings to us in the book. In Go Down Moses, it's very, very different. Faulkner speaks in seven different voices. We get seven different stories told from different points of view. So there is in Go Down Moses this sense of we that the southern people have this sense of identity with each other because they're associated with the land. And remember, the, 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 the way I describe the narrator at the open, and it's a phrase that, that Faulkner uses later in the book, um, we can call the, na the, the spirit of the narrator, narrating that book, anonymous communal. That's Faulkner's word, I love it. Anonymous communal, that there is a way of looking at the world that expresses a we that gets rid of the self, anonymous, communal. It's like a self-effacement takes place in order that a we can come out. Is that clear? 
Is that clear? So a very different spirit. The North is very individualistic, highly individualistic. There is a communal sense in the South, a we, that they're bound by their ties to the land, and it gives rise to all these different voices that we experience in the stories. Let me just leave it at that, and next week I'll see if I can touch on something more, but what I want to do is just carry this past forward, okay? Um, Sound and the Fury. Major themes. The most important, the most obvious theme of Sound and the Fury is the disintegration of a family. In the Compson family, we're experiencing a family in, in some, what happens to a, I'm going to, Okay, let me, the typical reading of Sound of the Fury, and particularly the Compton family, is that it's Faulkner's depiction of a family going to hell. It's the disintegration of, of a family, and in some ways the disintegration of the South. That's the way northern critics tend to look at it. I think there's some truth in that, but I want to be careful, so I'm going to qualify this, and I want you to hear the qualifications, take them really seriously. Um, we're, we're experiencing, we're led into the life of a family that had aristocratic background history. <coughs> it was landed, it was wealthy, it was a state. There were all the, um, all the signs of um, fame and prestige and wealth. And it's in collapse. And the, um, repeatedly throughout the book, the ways of describing that family are it's, it's cursed, it's lost its way. Benji's an idiot. Some people take it as a sign, like the Old Testament. It's a sign of the family's sin. It's a strong Old Testament spirit running through the South. Very Calvinistic. Very Calvinistic. Um, the family's cursed. I think there's some truth to that. I want to say, I think it's really important in some ways that we see this as an ordinary family. If we don't, I've said this to you before, I know you um, if we don't learn to see ourselves in all these people, then we're missing a chance. And, and that means looking at awful things. I've been reading the Jason chapter and wanting to go to confession every other page. Just, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a frightening, it's a frightening chapter. I mean, he's the one person in my mind that, that looks like he just came out of Dante's Inferno. I mean, it's just a hellish figure. But, um, one of the indications that the family's lost its way is that people lose their, their identity. Benji had his name changed, you know that, when he was young. Once they discovered that he was an idiot, they changed his name. Who is he? Who is he? He gets castrated later. I'm going to come back to that because it's one of the more important events in the thing. Caddy's name can't be spoken in the family. After she's married and the husband leaves her because he discovers that the child is not his, he leaves her, they won't let her home, they send their, her child home, and you know that her child's name is Clinton, it's the same name as her brother. Her name cannot be spoken. She has no identity. Take away a person's name, who are they? So in the Compton family, we're, we're given an image of modern man uprooted, identityless, without an identity. Family's under a curse. The theme of the past, really important. We know from the first three episodes that um, the past keeps intruding. 
You can't read the Benji episode without knowing how susceptible Benji is to the past. He can't do a thing without something triggering a past memory. Psychologists call it involuntary memories. It's not quite stream of consciousness. It's involuntary memories. We all know them, right? We go through our days, we'll, we, something will happen, and very often it will trigger a traumatic experience. Where it was, particularly death. I mean, if, you, if you've lost somebody and something, a sign comes up that reminds you, you know that for a moment, your memory goes back. It's an involuntary memory. That past suddenly intrudes itself, and it takes its place in the, in the present. becomes a part of the present. Um, I came across a Faulkner quote that really uh, emphasizes this, I think. Uh, it says that the past is never dead. It's not even past. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I don't know that quote. That's a good quote. It comes from the Requiem for None. Yeah. That's what I read. Yeah, good for you, Don. Mm -hmm. Say it again. The past is never dead. It is not even past. That's right. It stays with us. Yeah. We were a product of our past. Yeah, yes, our yes. Our culture, our families, our individuals. That's why I put this here. By the way, you know this from Go Down Moses because it was one of the major themes in Go Down Moses. Can, can you escape the past? Um, I did everything he could to redeem it and then learns at the end that it, the sin's enacted again as if, as if it was futile. I, I myself don't believe it was, but, but it, what it means is when you try to answer the past and then something reasserts itself again, it can leave you inconsolable. Then you say to yourself, now what? And my reason for saying that is because I think Christ had to face that all the time. You know, um, when we, let me put that differently. When we truly give ourselves up, when, do what I did, making a renunciation, do we do it freely um, or do we still do it with some sense that we'll get rewarded for it? Because if we do it thinking we'll get some reward and, and something takes it away, what will be the effect on us? Because that's what Ike is dealing with um, in Go Down Moses. One of the questions that we're going to have to come, can you escape from the past or can it be redeemed? And I'll, and I'll come to this a little bit more emphatically in a minute, but you know that the whole story takes place on Easter weekend. And we have to ask why. What Faulkner's doing with that? Religion, love offered, is it denied? I want to come back to this just... You can write this down. I, I, I don't want to give this away right now because I think it's important. But this theme of, of whether love is offered, and it's, it's related strongly to this. In the Compton family, there's, um, there seems to be no belief in God. We will learn in one of the later chapters that the mother is Christian, but it's hard to believe that she's Christian from the way she lives. But she sees herself as a Christian. Um, one of the ways we can look at the story is this is, what, this is what happens to a family when Christ is nowhere around. Take Christ out and this is what you got. Now my question is, if this is what it's about, why did Faulkner put this in Easter weekend? I don't want to answer right now, but I just I really want that question to everybody hold on to that while we go through this work. And once again, you know one of my favorite themes, reading. Um, I, uh, those of you who are newcomers, um, if you stay, uh, you'll know. Every work that we've read is partly about reading. And what we see in work after work after work after work is that people don't read well. And that's especially true of people who think they do, you know, the particularly educated people. 
what we're going to find in this book is that people constantly misread each other. It's even more true of educated people because they think they're smart. Um, how blind we are, how poorly we read each other, and what the poets are helping us to see. I, I hopefully to become better readers. You know. So this whole theme of reading. Um, we've talked about the importance of the form. Remember, it's it's not it's not the subject matter. The subject matter is a family disintegrating. Let's say that. The form is a different thing. They're related. You can't separate them. But the form is an action. Something's happening, and we have to put that form together the way we did with the Iliad, or the Odyssey, or because if we don't put it together and we get preoccupied with the subject matter, the theme, we won't see something. We'll see that in the Benji section in just a second. You've got the sheet on family events. And the reason it's important, you know, is because when you go through the Benji episode, um, if you don't know the family events, you're just going to get lost. If you have some sense of the family events, you have some sense of what it is that keeps intruding into Benji's consciousness. The major events were the grandmother's funeral, um, Quentin's death, he committed suicide, um, the father's funeral, more the uncle's funeral, um, some of Caddy's promiscuous evenings, you know, when she was out with these men sneaking out all the time. Um, what am I missing? Those are the those are the, the, the castration, things like that. We're going to go through some of them because we're going to go through the Benji ep um, episode in just a minute. But it's, it's, it's good to have those events in mind because it will, it will help you begin to make sense of the Benji episode. A couple of important things to know um, about the family. You all know that the family um, is in so many ways not a good family. Um, the father's alcoholic, he's very cynical, he has nothing good to say about people. He puts people down. Um, when he makes comments to his wife about her brother, Maury, who's staying with him, he, he makes it clear that it's, he only keeps him around to remind of his, him of his own superiority. Um, the mother is hypochondriac, she complains. She, she almost cannot speak a word without complaining, feeling sorry for herself. Always. Um, um, she can't free herself of self-pity. There's almost nothing that she does that doesn't express um, pity for herself. And very often she inflicts that on her family. She, she says, I'm such a burden to you all. You'll be, you'll be glad when I'm gone and you know those sorts of things. And so this is what the kids were raised by. This is what they grew up under. Um, the mother feels wounded because she thinks the father as a Compson looks down on her because her family line is Bascom. So there is behind this mother, remember this, the importance of, there is behind this mother this sense of an aristocratic past, that she had this noble past and it's long and it's as if her identity is suffered with the loss of it. So she carries this and it's, it's another source of self-pity. It's like, it's like her husband is holding her in ransom because he comes from a better family. So there's this sense of class divisions that she grew up with. We're reminded in, in all of these episodes that um, 
She has this strong sense of etiquette. She doesn't want Caddy to lift Benji because it will affect her posture. But, um, she, grew up, she grew up in the South with a family that looked at women as, as being weak and delicate and needing protection. They had to shelter the women. Um, so um, people had to do things for them. So Dilsey does everything for her. She, she almost cannot do anything for herself. Um, so those are qualities that the parents bring to their kids. The Negroes um, are clearly different as a people. They, they make a place for dying and death. They don't hide it from their kids. The Compsons try to hide the funerals from their children. The, the Negroes don't. They sing songs. They recognize the funerals. They don't avoid them. Um, they're full of superstition. And they've got this Old Testament sense of curses, that the family's under a curse, that old sins are being worked out. Um, and some of them see that Benji sees more than everybody thinks he does. And one of the interesting things that we have to ask, truly, truly here, Benji's an idiot. And yet he seems to see things nobody else can. And once again, how much does the intellect get in the way of reading? And let me put this differently. Caddy will come home, Benji will look at her eyes, and he'll know something's wrong. Twice in the, in the story, she comes home, I, I'm almost sure, after a sexual encounter. He knows it immediately. He goes to her. One time she says to him, nothing's been said. She says, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. She knows he knows. Very often when he's responding, crying, the family's going, shut up, what are you whining for? I mean, you can't read this section without, I, I, certainly I couldn't do it. You can't read it without wondering, is that what I do when I'm responding to somebody because I really don't fully see what's going on in that person? They're always misreading. Twice, Benji comes home. One time he pulls on her dress. She sinks down and weeps. I think that's when she lost her virginity. So he sees things that other people don't. It's as if his mind's not in the way. It's as if he's got a sense of the body, in a, in a, and I, I believe this strongly, in a culture that does everything to escape the body. We live in a Gnostic culture, I believe. It's very Gnostic in so many ways. Benji is, is trapped in his body, but it also gives him this acute power for sensing something that other people don't even see. So even though he's an idiot, um, he makes us aware in ways none of the other characters, his brothers or sisters, make us aware. Um, um, the things that tend to trigger these involuntary memories, most of all Caddy and her name. You remember the book begins with the golfers hollering out Caddy. Um, I can't say this strong. This breaks my heart. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to something in a minute. But um, as soon as he hears the word caddy, because she's been gone now for some time. Remember, she took off after the wedding and and when she had the child. He's not seen her forever, and he has no sense of time. They call they call out caddy for the go for <coughs> caddy. Immediately he starts crying and blubbering. And Lester's going, "Shut up! What's the matter with you?" No clue. He has no clue. So the one thing that triggers him most is his love for his sister. 
light, trees, fire, sounds, associations. When they come up the hill and he sees the cows, it will take him back to Caddy's wedding. We're going to look at that passage. He smells Caddy. He may even have smelled something or in a sexual encounter. I don't know. He smells death. When, it, when his father is dying in Mori and he goes through him, you know that he can smell something the others can't. He has no free will. He is, I hope that's clear, he's absolutely trapped. He's helpless against himself. If something comes up, it's going to come up. He can't do anything about it. When he reaches out, he will say, and my arm reached out and it went away. You know, my head went away in a mirror. I mean, he has no sense of depth perceptions, no cognition. So he's trapped in sensations and means he can't make sense of anything. How does it, I mean, I, my arm reached out and then it went away. I mean, he has no sense that there's this interconnectedness of his body or his body with his mind. Um, and anytime he finds himself in an intense situation, the way he does at the very end of the chapter when Jason and uh, Quentin are fighting, if you go back to that episode, you'll see that the involuntary memories come fast and intense. Because the more he gets worked up, the more those memories intrude. Think about that, how helpless he is to his past. The more worked up he gets, the more intense something he gets, the less, I mean, there's almost no control anyway, but then they overwhelm him. Who's done this? Name a writer. You, I told those of you who've been here, you know how much I love Jane Austen. And she, I, I told you, she gave me my eyes on a domestic world I, I can't. Compare Jane Austen's novels to Faulkner. And Jane Austen is she, 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 she. It's third, per, or, yeah, third person, usually limited. We get into Elizabeth Bennet's world, and Jane Austen describes it. There's an, um, a technique in, in a, the, actually, Jane Austen developed more than anybody called um, indirect free speech. She will describe, let's say, if you know Pride and Prejudice, if she'll describe Elizabeth Bennet, but it won't be the narrative voice and it won't be Elizabeth's voice, it'll be some voice in between. It's as if she's speaking for a person because she's using her language without putting it in quotes. It's called indirect free speech. Free speech. So in Jane Austen, we're beginning to get inside a character. In Faulkner, we are completely inside. And Faulkner's the, think about it, who, who in the last 200 years ever, ever got into the mind of an idiot? How democratic is that? Well, this whole Benji section got me thinking about Descartes' uh, statement, I think therefore I am, and reply to Benji, and he doesn't think so, he doesn't exist in yeah. Descartes' mind, yeah. where he actually does exist. See, I think Benji's the product of the fault that follows Descartes. Because after Descartes, we get in a, in a duality, a schism. We get dis I, I think one of the problems with modern philosophy stem from Descartes, because in Descartes, he makes thinking the condition of being. We get dissociated from our bodies. The, the realists, going back through the Catholic Middle Ages, always began with the body, with our senses. Nothing gets in the mind except through our senses. We are fully engaged in our bodies. After Descartes, we're in our heads. 
and this schism takes place. I mean, there's this radical schism between our bodies and our minds. That's the condition of the modern world. T.S. Eliot called it a dissociation of sensibility. We live in these dissociations. So those are some of the um, things to keep in mind when we look at the Benji story. I'm going to give you a, just a, a brief summary of the of Benji's event. Remember, here's the here's the four sections: the Benji, Clinton, Jason, Dilsey. This one takes place on, and I want to, I don't want to answer, but I want to put, I put this question out. We won't be able to answer it until we have a couple of meetings and we get along. Why did Faulkner invert the order? It begins with Benji on Easter Eve, Saturday, on the 7th of April. In the Quentin section, we go back, um, what is it, 18 years to Quentin's death, his suicide. In the Quentin episode, we go through the day with Quentin. On, um, we don't see him committing suicide, but we know that that's going to happen. So we start on Saturday, then we go back to Friday, Good Friday, and the Jason episode. And then it ends on April 8th, on Easter Sunday, in the Dilsey section. So one of the major questions I want to just put out, I don't want to try to answer right now, is why did Faulkner, wait, two questions here. Why did he set this on Easter weekend? When this is about a family that seems to have nothing to do with God, where God does not seem to be present, why did he set this story on Easter weekend? Number one. Number two, why did he invert it? Why does he start on Saturday, Easter Eve, and take us back to Good Friday, and then why does he do that? What's he doing? Isn't uh, wait? I don't want to answer. <laughs> Sorry, is that? If, no, I, I I just have a question. Yeah, or just a statement is that maybe Faulkner was more or less a prophet during his period of time, from the standpoint of what he's depicting, from what's going to happen, what's happening even in today's world. That's too deep to go into right now. <laughs> I thought so. I hope you don't mind if I bypass that, Mike. No, 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 that's that's fine. We can talk about it later. That's a world. Yes. That's a whole world of. I hold on to that. I will, because I want to come back when we pick this question up again and see how it relates to what you're saying. So hold on to what you're saying. The second, the second question is this one, and um, I'm going to get to it in, in one second, but I just have to say this before I turn to the book. Those of you who are here when we did the Iliad, no, sorry, the Aeneid, remember me saying to everybody, the Aeneid is not for timid people, does that know? What's the word? Not for... Hmm? No, it's not for weak-minded people, or I can't remember what it is. Because in the Aeneid, for those of you who did it, remember, there's nothing that Aeneas doesn't have to give up. It was like Achilles, except more. He has to accept his death. Except in Aeneas' case, there's a calling. He, the gods are asking something of him. And every, every step he takes, he sees he got it wrong. And he has to keep giving up everything. He has to give up his home. He has to give up his wife. Finally, he has to sacrifice his life and 
There's nothing he doesn't have to give up. To read the Aeneid, T.S. Eliot said, is to, is to grow into maturity. I mean, it's, it's what, you, what you have to struggle when you come into adulthood. I can remember saying that, that it wasn't for squeamish people. I want to say that now with Sound of the Fury, except I want to multiply it a thousand times. If we're supposed to read and learn to see ourselves in characters, I don't, I, I, this cannot be an easy book to read because there's so much wrong. The characters are complaining, whining, blaming, blind. I mean, there's just very little good going on. And if we're supposed to see ourselves here, it seems to me that the, the next thing we do after we put the book down is run off to confession. That's <laughs> all I can. Um, okay, here's this other. Major, what is Benji trying to say? I'm going to leave it like that because it's going to become a major thing here. Here was the great struggle I had. I've not taught this book before. I read it 20, 25 years ago. I haven't read it since. And I wasn't even sure that I should have started this year. And I thought to myself, there was sense in teaching the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy because of this Perusia action. It's just amazing to see it. Once you see it, you come away say, all these ancient texts were prophetic of Christ's coming. Even if they didn't know him, they had these intimations. Otherwise, how could every one of them have this same action? Um, and then I thought, Sound of the Fury, did I make a huge mistake? How am I going to show Christ here when it's so clear that he's not visible anywhere? I mean, there's, he's, he, these are not people who have strong Christian beliefs. They don't live them out. Have I made a mistake? And it was, it was a serious troubling for me. I'm not, not I mean, because I, you know I said before, I don't want to do this class just for the literature. It's not why we're here. And I had the hardest time. And then I started working through these chapters, and I was in the Jason episode, but thinking about um, the Benji episode, and suddenly something hit me. And we'll see what you think right now. Okay, we're going to get to this. Um, is Christ here? Is he here or not? Um, I want to um, I want to take you through some of the passages just to give you a feel for it, and then I'm going to ask this question that um, seems to me the most important question of the Benji section. Can you turn to the first page? So this is Easter Eve, Saturday, Easter Eve. Here's the plot. Let me just, I'm going to just, right now I'm just going to lay it out as simple as it is. The story begins with Luster and Benji walking along the, the fence that divides the Compton property from the golf course. And you know that the, the golf course was once Benji's inheritance. The parents sold it off to get the money to send Quentin to Harvard. Here, there's Har these aristocratic, I don't know if you want to call them pretensions, but aspirations. Um, so here's this pasture that was once Benji's. It begins with Luster and Benji walking along the fence and the golfers calling out Caddy. And Benji beginning to cry and slobber and, and Luster getting angry at him and saying, shut up, what are you doing? People are going to look at you, that sort of thing. They go along the fence. Benji's trying to find a quarter that he dropped because the one thing that he wants Luster. more than anything else... Luster. Is or Luster. Luster. 
um, is to go to the show that night because the show's in town. Now think about it. He does not care about Benji. He wants to get to this show. He has to do this. It's his duty. So he has to watch this idiot. Um, he, Benji gets, snags his clothes on the fence and immediately we're taken back to a point when he was called Maury. He was three years old. Um, Caddy would have been seven and Caddy unsnags him. So immediately we're taken back into a world and that's the beginning of all these involuntary memories that will overwhelm the, the, the section. They come to a branch which I think is a fork in this little string where the Negroes are washing clothes. And there he talks with, I think, an older man about what's going on. They make fun of Benji. Luster asks if he can't get a quarter from this guy because he wants to go to the show. The man has nothing good to say about whites. His prejudices against whites come out very clearly. Um, they play for a while in the stream and we go back to the branch when the kids were young because that's one of the places where most of the activities took place. The kids went down to that branch, that little fork in the stream, and played. One of the major scenes take place there because Candy takes off her dress. You remember she sits in the stream and gets mud on her drawers and Jason says he's going to tattle, he does, and they go home and she climbs up the tree and ben, one of the episodes that Benji remembers is seeing Caddy's bottom disappear into the trees. The, the modern Freudians, they have nothing to say about this episode except that it's all sexual. I'm going <laughs> to hold on to that because of what I'm going to do in a minute. Because what, what it seems to me what this episode is about could not be farther away. Although there are signs of it there. They return to the fence. Um, they, um, the golfers hit a ball into the, across the, over the fence. Um, they come looking for it. Um, um, Luster says they can't find it. They go back away. One of the golfers calls the caddy again and that sets Benji off. Luster goes and picks up the ball with the idea of selling it to a golfer because he'll get his quarters so and he can go to the show. <laughs> then they head up the hill and they see some, they see um, Roscus, I think, milking cows. And the sign of the cows takes Benji back to um, Caddy's wedding, and I don't want to give anything away, but because I want to read that scene because strange things happen with the cows. And once they leave there, they go to this, they're on their way home, they go to where this swing is, and Benji sees Quentin, Caddy's daughter, with this showman who's there. They go over. The, the showman is very insulting towards Benji and, and Quentin gets upset with him and starts to run off. Um, Luster looks over in the ground and he sees this shiny thing and he thinks he'll give it to Benji because Benji gets quieted with light things, shiny things. It turns out to be a rubber, a condom, and it leads the man to ask what um, Quentin's been doing and Luster says nobody knows what she's, you know, she's out with all the men. They go home. Um, by the time they get home, it's dinner time. Luster and Benji eat cake. Um, Dilsey comes in and threatens Luster with his life if he has one more bite of cake because he's eating it all. Jason comes home from work. Jason is always mean. Um, he hates Quentin. They quarrel. Quentin runs upstairs. Benji, who is overwhelmed by the quarrel, goes into the library, huddles in a quarter by himself. 
Lester comes in and says, let's go to bed. And he takes him in bed and dresses him and gets him ready for bed. And at that point, Lester says, come over here. And they go to the window and they see the trees shaking. They don't, they don't describe a figure, but we know that Quentin is escaping out because the mother locks the door, escaping down the tree the way Caddy did when she was young and that she's going to go off with these men. That's the story. Now, let me put this as strongly as I can. If you look at the Benji story, the way I've just, the plot, nothing happens. Yeah? Along a fence looking for a quarter, go to the branch where people are washing clothes, um, go to the swing where there's a touchy moment, but not, I mean, we discover a kind of it. Benji doesn't know. There's, they go home and eat dinner and quarrel and go to bed. In lots of ways, those events are no different in essence from so many of the events that take place in most families across our country. Right. Nothing happens. I can't put it strongly enough. And yet, we know that underneath the surface there is this turmoil from which Benji cannot escape. Who sees it? How often do we go through our lives because we look at each other in terms of appearances without having a clue about what's going on underneath. That's what Faulkner's doing by bringing those two worlds together. He's done something, no other, Joyce did it, he learned from Joyce, but I don't, Joyce was not the storyteller Faulkner is. So that's the Benji, it's the opening section. Why did Faulkner begin this book with a Benji section? The whole family history is laid out, I mean that's gotta be one of the reasons, because if we were in the mind of anybody else, we would never have gotten it because none of the other characters are as susceptible to Benji to all these things. So the whole family history is given to us. It's in chaos, we have to put it together, but if you look at it, we see a very ordered sequence. We can put it together, we know this is what's going on. Except in Benji's consciousness, it is chaos. He has no control over it. He's absolutely helpless in the face of it. Okay? So hold on to those two things. In the Benji episode, the plot is very simple. Nothing happens. Inside, is there any way to describe how much goes on? Because it's overwhelming in some ways. Okay? Now, I'd like to, what I'd like to do is just read through some passages with you and then I've got one serious question I've got to ask you that I was a blow away from me. Let's see what you guys think. Can you turn to page one? First page. Through the fence between the curling flowers. By the way, if you go online to look at the study guides, the study guides will say, Benji's the narrator. Through the fence between the curling flower spaces. I could see, is Benji narrating that? He, he's, he cannot use words. This is, we're in a lyric world. We're not in a narrative world. This is not Jane Austen narrating. This is a story being narrated. We're inside his consciousness, and a story's being narrated. Benji's not capable of doing this, right? So it's important to see, it's not that, well, the fiction is that it's being narrated. We're getting all of this presented to us from inside his consciousness, okay? Modern writers would call it stream of consciousness, or modern critics would. 
Through the fence between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. They were coming towards where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the flower tree. They took the flag out, and they were hitting. You think Benji could run five sentences together in perfect sequence? If we were in Benji's mind, and, and that was narrated, there's no way any of this would make sense. It would be absolute chaos. Here, Caddy, he hit. They went across the passage. I held to the fence and watched them going away. Listen to you now, Lester said. Ain't you something? 33 years old. There it is. Does Lester have a clue? Not a clue. And it's going to get deeper. It's going to get more painful. This is just the surface of it. The men go off. We see the flag flapping in the wind. Um, going down page four at the bottom. They start to go through, I think, this wire hole, if I've got it. Um, Benji bends down, and he snags his shirt, bottom of page four. Do you all have books? Does everybody have a book? Or we're all, you all have, can you look on it, can, um, can you share? Um, towards the bottom of page four, we went along the fence and came to the garden fence where our shadows were. My shadow was higher than Lester's on the fence. We came to the broken place and went through it. Wait a minute, Lester said. You snagged on that nail again. Can't you never crawl through here without snagging on that nail? Complaining again. Caddy uncaught me and we crawled through. Uncle Maury said to not let anybody see us, so we better stoop over, Caddy said. Stoop over, Benji, like this, see? We stooped over and crossed the garden where the flowers rasped and rattled against us. Do you hear her voice? Maury said not to let us see. Caddy said, stoop over, Venji, like this, see? We stooped over and crossed the garden where the flowers rasped and rattled on. I hear a seven-year-old girl, sister, looking out for her brother in love. It's like this, Benji. Do it like this. She's so kind. You know, she's showing him. He, he's three. I expect they're sorry because one of them got killed today, Caddy said. She's responding sympathetically to one of the animals. Yeah. The ground was hard, churned and knotted. Keep your hands in your pockets, Caddy said, or they'll get froze. You don't want your hands froze on Christmas. There she is again, absolutely caring. It's too cold out there, Verse said. Now, we're taking back to another day inside the house. So we've left that scene of the fence where Caddy unsnagged them. We're inside, and this takes place. Um, you don't want to go outdoors. Now, who, Verse, remember, Verse was the black caretaker when Benji was a child. We know Faulkner has get, Faulkner's amazing. He gives us clues. It's Verse, uh, Verse, Verse, TPN, Luster. So that we know where we are just in time by those three men. And Verse was the one who watched Benji when he was a child. So we know right now where we are. This is just amazing if you think about what he's doing. What is it now, Mother said. He want to go outdoors, Verse said. Let him go, Uncle Murray said. It's too cold, Mother said. He better stay in. Ben now remember, the mother saying, make him stay in. It's better for him to be in. Mother said, he better stay in. Benji, stop that now. It won't hurt him, Mother said. You, Benjamin, Mother said. So the name change has taken place at this point. If you don't be good, you have to go to the kitchen. Mama say, keep him out of the kitchen today, Verse said. She say she got all that cooking to get done. Let him go, Caroline, Uncle Murray said. You worry yourself sick over him. I know it, Mother. It's a judgment on me. Sometimes wonder. I know, I know, Uncle Murray said. You must keep your strength up. 
I'll make you a toddy. That's the answer to. We, we know we know we know that uh, we know that Murray's always drinking. I mean, so many of the scenes show him putting back a bottler. The same thing with the father. Um, You'll feel bitter, Uncle Murray said. Wrap him up, good boy, and take him out for our Uncle Murray went away. Verse went away. Please hush, Mother said. We're going to get you out as fast as we can. Verse put on my overshoes and overcoat on, and we took my cap and went out. Uncle Murray was putting the bottle away in the sideboard in the, at the top of the next page. The gate was cold. You better keep them hands in your pocket, Verse said. You get them froze onto the gate. Then what you do, why don't you wait for them in the house? He put my hands into the pockets. I could hear him rattling in the leaves. Now remember this gate, because I think this gate is one of the most important symbols in the whole. It separates two worlds, physically. In some ways, it's also a symbol of all sorts of membranes, two different worlds, this gate. Just remember it for right now, because it'll come into play in a really important way in a minute. Here's some hickey nuts. Wooey, get up that tree. Look here at this squirrel, Benji. I couldn't feel the gate at all, but I could smell the bright cold. You better put them hens back in your pockets. Caddy was walking. Then she was running, her book satchel swinging and jouncing behind her. Why is she running? Because she sees Benji. Right? I mean, she was walking. He's there. And then suddenly... Hello, Benji, Caddy said. She opened the gate and came in and stooped down. Caddy smelled like leaves. Did you come to meet me, she said. Did you come to meet Caddy? What did you let him get his hands so cold for, Versh? I told him to keep them in his pockets, Versh said, holding on to that gate. Did you come to meet Caddy, she said, rubbing my hands. What is it? What are you trying to tell Caddy? Caddy smelled like trees and like when she says we were asleep. What are you... Mo now... Caddy's going, what are you trying to tell me? Hold on, this breaks my heart. I can't tell you when I saw this. It just stunned me. She's saying to him, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to tell me? What is Luster saying? What are you moaning about? Okay, two different worlds. Top of seven, what is it, Caddy said? What are you trying to tell Caddy? Did they send him out, Verge? Couldn't keep him in. Why could they not keep him in? Because he wanted to see Caddy. Does anybody see that? They do? Does anybody see that? No, absolutely not. There's, and wait, if we, if we do, it's only because a poet, yeah, saw it. Couldn't keep him in, verse said. He kept on till they let him go, and he come right straight down here. Look, I mean, it's so obvious once you see it, and you can miss it. Everybody in the book is. Here it goes again. What is it, Caddy said. Did you think it would be Christmas when I came home from school? Is that what you thought? Christmas is the day after tomorrow. Santa Claus, Benji, Santa Claus. Come on, let's run to the house and get warm. She keeps saying, tell me what you want to... Um, now, we have a number of desks, um, um, the grandmothers and others. Um, um, going over to page 46. Oh, wait, wait, sorry, no, wait. I want to get to the cows on page 20. Sorry, go to 21st. Luster and Benji are headed back towards the barn, and they see um, um, Roscoe's 
<coughs> milking the cows at the bottom of 20. Um, Roscus was milking the cows in the barn door. That triggers another memory, yeah? Except now it's Caddy's wedding, so we're in 1910. That's when she gets married. The cows came jumping out of the barn. Go on, T.P. said. Holler again. I'm going to holler myself. Woo-wee! Quentin kicked T.P. again. He kicked T.P. into the trough where the pigs ate, and T.P. lay there. Hot dog, T.P. Didn't he get me then? You see that white man kick me that time? Woo-wee! I wasn't crying, but I couldn't stop. I wasn't crying, but the ground wasn't still. And then I was crying. The ground kept sloping up, and the cows ran up the hill. T.P. tried to get up. He fell down again, and the cows ran down the hill. What's going on? Huh? He's dizzy. He's been drinking. He's drunk and tumbling. And what we're getting is the cows are going up, and when he tumbles, the cows are going down. It, it's, it, I mean, it's exactly the way it would be inside his head. He fell down again. The cows ran down the hill. Quentin held my arm, and we went towards the barn. Then the barn wasn't there. <laughs> and we had to wait until it came back. <laughs> It came behind us. Quentin set me down in the trough where the cows ate. I held onto it. I wasn't going away too, and I held to it. The cows ran down the hill again, across the door. I couldn't stop. Quentin and T.P. came up the hill fighting. T.P. was falling down the hill. Quentin dragged him up to the hill. Quentin hit T.P. I mean, you can see this. He's tumbling. He's drunk. He's dizzy. Um, I'd like to go on because I love this. But he can't stop, and something's inside of him. And I, I'm assuming it's the sensation you have when you have too much alcohol and it affects your body and um, he has no words for it. Going over to um, page 46. This is why I take... This is why I take such pleasure in this chapter, and I'm sure the rest of you do too. Because it's, just think about the difference, what he's, how he's teaching in the street. Read a Jane Austen novel. Everything is linear. That's the way they saw things. Which one is more faithful to the way we actually experience the world? Which means we have to work. The writer's not doing it all for us. Any more than somebody's there to hold our hand to say, should you really have spoken that way to that person? You know, we have to work at what we're doing. He, he's, it's asking more of us in the way that we read. 46. Um, let's see. At the bottom of 46, Luster came back. Wait, he said, here, don't go over there. Miss Quinton and her bow are in the swing. You know that we're going to go over there, and Quinton will be with the sky, and Luster will see the rubber. So this is taking us, while Quinton is in the swing, Caddy's daughter, the episode in the swing takes Benji back to a similar episode when Caddy was there with Charlie in the swing. Is everybody clear? Um... 47. It was two now and then one in the swing. Caddy came fast, white in the darkness. Benji said, how did you slip out? Where's Versh? What's her concern? Immediately for Benji. She's having, she's being sexually loose. Her immediate concern is her brother. Why Benji? She said, what is it, TP? She called. So TP 
we know we're in Benji's teenage years. He's older here, mm -hmm. okay? And so is Caddy. We know that. She's sexually active. Benji, Caddy said, it's just Charlie. Don't you know Charlie? Obviously she's saying that because Benji's not comfortable with this guy. Where's his nigger, Charlie said. What do they let him run loose for? Hush, Benji, Caddy said. Go away, Charlie. He doesn't like you. Charlie went away and I hushed. I pulled at Caddy's dress. Well, Benji, aren't you going to let me stay here and talk to Charlie a while? Call that nigger, Charlie said. He came back. I cried louder. He's giddy. She didn't go with him because he didn't, and she wants to be with him. He's getting more upset. Go away, Charlie, Caddy said. Charlie came and put his hands on Caddy, and I cried more. I cried loud. No, no, Caddy said. No, no. He can't talk, Charlie said. Caddy, are you crazy, Caddy said. She began to breathe fast. He can see. Don't, don't. Fondling, putting, you know, who knows what. Um, Caddy fought. They both breathed fast. You can imagine the effect on binging. Um, she runs off, page 48. Caddy, Charlie, whispered, we went on. You better come back. Are you coming back? She's running off to take care of Benji. Caddy and I were running. Caddy, Charlie said, we ran out to the moonlight towards the kitchen. Caddy, Charlie said. Caddy and I ran. We ran up to the kitchen steps onto the porch, and Caddy knelt down in the dark and held me. I could hear her and feel her chest. I won't, she said. I won't anymore, ever, Benji, Benji. Then she was crying, and I cried, and we held each other. Hush, she said. Hush, I won't anymore. So I hushed, and Caddy got up, and we went into the kitchen and turned the light on. Caddy took the kitchen soap and washed her mouth at the sink hard. Caddy smelled like trees. We can only imagine that she smelled like something else before. But um, she's the only one um, who, who feels this. He's the only one that can see what's going on with her. He has no words to speak to it, but he knows. And th think what Jason's response would have been to her, knowing that she was sexually loose. It's, it's Benji's helplessness that makes her say, I won't anymore. I won't. Stunning. Now go on over 30, let's see, 51. Caddy's gone. She's been gone for a while. Benji has no sense of time, right? He just knows she's gone. He goes out to the gate, remember? He sees the girls. Um, bottom of 51. Ain't nothing going to quiet him, T.P. said. He thinks he'd go down to the gate. Miss Caddy, come back. T.P.'s got at least some sense. It, because we know that Benji goes to the gate hoping to see T.P. says if he, he thinks if he goes there, she, it's like that's a cause of an effect, that it will bring her, because that's the way his mind works. Nonsense, Mother said. I could hear them talking. I went out the door, and I couldn't hear them. I went down to the gate where the girls passed with their books satchels. They looked at me walking fast with their heads turned. I tried to say, but they went on. And I went along the fence trying to say, and they went faster. Then they were running, and I came to the corner of the house, and I couldn't go any further, and I held the fence looking to them and trying to say, You, Benji, T.P., what are you doing slipping through? Now, I don't want to answer this, but what's he trying to say? Does anybody see it? That's the first time. And the next occasion, he goes out. This is another time, page 53. 
It came on in the twilight. I wasn't crying and I held on to the gate. He came out for what? Caddy. Um, they came slow. And, and by this time, the girls have become aware that there's this idiot behind a fence. And their parents, I'm sure, have said, stay away from that guy. You don't know what he's going to do. So they walk on the other side of the street. Um, I'm scared. He won't hurt you. I pass here every day. He just turns along the fence. They came on. I opened the gate. Somebody left the gate open. I opened the gate and they stopped turning. I was trying to say, and I caught her trying to say, and she screamed. He's got a hold of one of the girls. The father's watching this. He's looking at what he thinks is an idiot, wanting to molest his daughter. She screamed and I was trying to say and trying. The bright shapes began to stop and I tried to get out. I tried to get it off my face. I mean, he's being overwhelmed right now. Um, but the bright shapes were going again. They were going up the hill to where I fell and I tried to cry. But when I breathed in, I couldn't breathe out again. He, he's so caught up inside, he almost can't breathe. I tried to keep him from falling off the hill and I fell off the hill into the bright whirling shapes. Now, Caddy in the beginning, what are you trying to say to me, Benji? Tell Caddy what you're trying to say. What are you trying to say? First time he goes to the girl, I wanted to say, kept going, I wanted to say, here he goes out of the gate, he grabs one, and he said, and I wanted to say, and I wanted to say. Let's go to the end now. After the quarrel at the dinner table between Jason and Quentin, Quentin runs off to a room, Benji's overwhelmed, he goes into the um, library and he huddles by himself. Lester comes to get him. Um, um, I wish we had time to read this, but um, but we don't. Uh, I'd like to read more, but I want to get to the end here. Lester comes in, he, um, he takes him in and changes him into his clothes, and, um, and then we get this end. Lester takes him to the window, and they see the tree shaking. They don't see a figure, but they see the... Um, and this is the last um, scene. L- Lester, more than anything, wants to get off to the show and has to put up with this idiot. He wants to go to the show. And Benji has this, this involuntary memory again. Page 73. I want to sleep with Dadami. Jason said because he always slept with his grandmother until she died and that was a big turning point for him. She's sick, Caddy said. You can sleep with her when she gets well. Candy, Dilsey. There she is again. I'm trying to be encouraging to her. I mean, they're out, they quarrel and sometimes she quarrels, but still, I mean, watch what she does. Hush now, Dilsey said. Jason, hush. Arnides are here and everything, Caddy said. It's like moving. You better get into them, Dilsey said. You better unbutton Jason. Caddy unbuttoned Jason. He began to cry. You want to get whipped, Dilsey said. Jason hushed. Quentin, Mother said in the hall. What, Quentin said behind the wall. We heard Mother lock the door. She locked, she looked in our door and came in and stooped over the bed and kissed me on the forehead. When you get him to bed, go and ask Dilsey. She objects to my having a hot water bottle, Mother said. Tell her that if she does, I'll try to get, um, I'll try to get along without it. Tell her I just want to know. Yes, um, Lester said. Come on, get your pants on. Um, he gets him to bed. They watch the shaking tree, page 74. There were two beds. Quentin got in the other one. He turned his face to the wall. Dilsey put Jason in with him. Caddy took her dress off. 
Just look at your drawers, Dilsey said. You better be glad your ma ain't been. Remember, that was that day when at the creek she took her dress off and got her drawers muddy. I already told on her, Jason said. I bound you would, Dilsey said. See what you got by it, Caddy said. Tattletale. What did I get by it, Jason said. Why don't you get your nightie on, Dilsey said. She went and helped Caddy take off her bodice and drawers. Just look at you, Dilsey said. Go down. All right, Caddy said. Mother's not coming in tonight, she said, so we still have to mind me. Yes, Dilsey said, get to sleep now. Mother's sick, Caddy said. She and Damini are both sick. This is the, uh, the occasion of grandmother's death. Hush, Dilsey said, you go to sleep. The room went black except the door. Then the door went black. Caddy said, hush, Maury, putting her hand on me. So he's, what, three, three, four again. Hush, Maury, putting her hand on me, so I stayed hushed. We could hear us, we could hear the dark. It went away, and Father looked at us. He looked at Quentin and Jason, and then he came and kissed Caddy and put his hand on my head. Is Mother very sick? Caddy said. No, Father said. Are you going to take good care of Maury? Yes, Caddy said. Father went to the door and looked at us again. Then the dark came back, and he stood back in the door, and then the door turned black again. Caddy held me and could hear all of us, and the darkness and something I could smell, and then I could see the windows where the trees were buzzing. Then the dark began to go in smooth, bright shapes, like it always does, even when Caddy says that I have been asleep. Now, it seems to me what happens here is that Benji takes comfort in going to sleep with these memories. In the, in the page before, I should have read it, I didn't, but on page um, 72, um, we have a Benji remembering a moment in the, in the library where the father sits in the chair. This is in the middle of 72. Jason's eyes were puffed shut and his mouth moved like tasting. Caddy's head was on father's shoulder. Her hair was like fire and little points of fire were in her eyes. And I went and father lifted me into the chair too and Caddy held me. She smelled like trees. All of his children are in the lap. This is the father. One of the last scenes of the book. The father with all the children are in the lap. The last scene closes with the father closing the door, kissing Caddy, putting a hand on Benji, going out, and then we're left with the darkness. And then, then the dark began to go in smooth, bright shapes. I take it that morning's coming. The dawn is there and light's just beginning to show. Like it always does, even when Caddy says that I have been asleep, the night passed, he has no sense of time, the day's about to begin, and it will be cyclic, it'll be repetitive. It, so that we, but there is Caddy. She begins the episode, she ends it. And the last images are of the father that seemed to me, anyway, you may disagree, but are comforting. You know, he's not drinking, he's got his kids on his lap, and he comes in to say goodnight. But here's my question, the question. It seems to me, <coughs> despite what modern critics do with this, you know, Caddy's drawers and... Um, it seems to me that this, this um, Benji section, if you look at the plot, nothing happens. They go along the fence looking for a quarter, they go to the branch, they go home, there's a quarrel, they go to bed. And yet this whole underworld is in turmoil. If, if you read this story, I think, the way I think Faulkner's written it, you can read it as a detective story. And the fundamental question at the heart of it is, 
What is Benji trying to tell Caddy? He is at the center of his, she is at the center of his life. He lives around her. She's more important to him than anything else in the world. He goes out to the gate, he goes to sleep thinking about her. The last comment is when Caddy says, you've been asleep, when she wakes him in the morning. She's tender of him, she's careful, she looks out for him. Everybody else is saying, shut up, you blubber, and Caddy has this kindness everywhere. And there's no place in the house for her anymore. After the illegitimate child, she's away, Quentin's there, and Quentin's following in her brother's footsteps. But it seems to me the fundamental question of this story, this opening, is what was Benji trying to tell Caddy? One of the great ironies is when he goes to the girls when they're passing, he's clearly going out there for her. Now some people think he's going to cost them. The father thinks that. I think lots of readers think the same thing. I think that's a misreading. He's going out there because he keeps wanting, he doesn't have time differences. He wants to see his sister. The first time he goes out and he says, and I tried to say, if you go back to that passage, it goes, I tried to say, I tried to say, and the paragraph ends, I tried to say, and then it goes on to a dialogue. Faulkner couldn't make it more emphatic. Very next page, Caddy comes and says, what are you trying to say? What do you want to say to Caddy? What does Benji want to say to Caddy? What are the words that are not spoken in this opening story? Don't go out in the world, stay home and be safe. You think so? Did he love her? I love her. Yeah. Yes, I want to put it more strongly, if I can. He doesn't have words. And I want to come to the second part. So how does he get there? He doesn't have words for it. And, and by the way, has he ever heard those words from anybody in his family? I love you. It has to be something like, I love you, I've been looking for you. I want to make it even stronger. I think, I think what he does not have words for is, I long for you. It's like the dear cup. Breaks my heart. It's like that psalm of the deer panting for water. Remember that psalm? The deer thirsting for water. I think it's this hunger for the word. This longing. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets close to it. I think, I mean, I love you is, you know, but, I mean, in some way it's got to be the shared intimacy in the Trinity. This that humans long for, and that we get close to, and I love you. And he doesn't have words for it. Now the question is, I don't know what your thoughts are, if anybody, but I'd like to hear, because remember my, the predicament I felt myself in when I thought, when I thought about doing Sound of Fear, and I thought, where's Christ? I mean, what am I gonna, why am I doing this? And then suddenly, this thing opens up and, um, Benji can't talk. I hope he doesn't have words. Could Benji have ever put five sentences in sequence the way the, the opening does, the way I read it? Through the fence, between the curling flower. Could he even see between or through or anything continuous or sequential? I could see them hitting. They were coming towards where... I, if, if Benji cannot speak, he's certainly not the narrator of this, it's being narrated, and yet we're inside Benji's consciousness. Where do these words come from? 
that your question? That's my question, yes. On the soul? Explain that. Well, we long for God with our soul. That's Our soul goes to heaven, so that's why I'm saying that. Anybody else? I think you're... Anybody want to add anything or... If Christ, if, if we're made in the image of Christ, we're made in the image of Christ, what C.S. Lewis called the anima Christiani, the soul of Christ, the image of Christ in each person, at the center of every human person. By the way, I don't think Faulkner intended this. I think this is an, I, I may be wrong, but I don't think he intended this. But if we're made in the image of God and we're made in the image of Christ, Christ is, and he's the incarnate image of that, that animus, um, I've got to write that on the board, I'll do it another time, Christianity, the image of Christ in us, of the soul, then the word is at the center of every human soul, the word. And all the words that come from it are an expression of that logos, the longing for the logos, to, to find truth, to bring light and truth into the world. There's no way Benji could have done this, none. So how do we account from it taking place in an idiot? So I think that this is me, and I may be pushing something here, but I, I, I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe in it pretty strongly, but it seems to me that in some ways we have to say, Benji can't use these words, he's incapable of, there is this longing, for me the image of that, the, the hind panting for spring waters, the deer, you know, I can't remember the psalm, 147, I don't remember what the song was, but that longing, that deep, that deep longing at the center of every human soul, which makes everything else in the book that much more painful, because it's the last thing on anybody's mind. The, the only one that gets close to it is Benji longing for Caddy, and he has no words with which to express that. Keep saying, I want to say, I want to say. Caddy's going, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to say to me? So at the heart of this first chapter is this mystery. What's Benji trying to say? Um, he doesn't have words for it. Has he ever heard anything like that in his family? A longing that not even I love you might be able to fully catch. You know, I don't know. So here in this opening chapter, in Sound and the Fury, we've got an idiot. I didn't read you from the Shakespeare play. I'll, I'll do that next time. So it's taken from a passage in Shakespeare's Macbeth, but We've got the sounds of an idiot slobbering, crying, everybody going, stop mumbling, stop doing this. Are you doing that again? And what Faulkner's showing us is that there's this whole underworld that nobody sees, and at the center of it is this longing, this profound longing for which he has no words. It seems to me that's the word. We'll leave it there, okay? It's good to see you all again. Uh, called Tom and Linda, tell them I missed them. Uh, anybody knows Sue or Kathy? I know they were Sue or Kathy, but I'll, I'll really be sorry if we lose them. So we'll meet in this room every Friday morning. You hold on, just just so you know. Can I have your attention? Sorry. We're gonna meet this room. Yeah, we're gonna meet here.
Well, I, I'm planning to start at 9.15, try to start to stop at 11, I keep failing. Um, hold on. Um, bring the money for the books, because we've got to get this money um, settled. What else was I going to say? Oh, could we get some volunteers to help out with something in the morning? So the Feb gets some help. Can somebody bring something? You want to bring it? Great. Can somebody do it the following week? It'll be easier. Somebody else? I can't, but I can do it the week after that. Okay, can somebody do it the following week? I just want to line things up. What's the following? Oh, that was it. The other thing, you know that the week after classes, the the audio recordings go online. So if you ever miss something or you feel you want to go back and listen to something, again, they're available on the church website under that section called, I think it's Watch and Listen. So don't kind of keep you should go into that. Okay. And it's going to be on every week. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay. Are you asking for volunteers to bring something? Oh, something. It doesn't matter. Some people bring fruit or anything. Just whatever anybody wants to bring. Um, I'm going to have, I have, can't come to 6. And she already volunteered for the 13th, so I'll have to volunteer for later. Okay, just wait, wait, do it later because we'll see what happens next week. Okay, all right. Can I ask? The people, anybody who can stay for a minute, help me put the room back because these tables have to be put back in a, so I'd be grateful for any help. Which means if all of you could get up so we can put the tables back, I would be really grateful. No, no, they're, we have to put this in a square and the chairs around it. Oh, there's the picture on the wall. I think these all get turned this way.